From Sydney Opera House, welcome to It's a Long Story, a podcast exploring the stories behind the ideas. I'm your host, Hamish McDonald. Hi, my name is Gretel Colleen. What did I want to be when I grew up? The main thing I dreamt about was just being free. But I will say a fireman because that sounds better. Some words to describe the woman who sits before me. Creative. You've seen her on TV, in theatre. Prolific. She's written more than 20 books. Overachieving, maybe, as well. She wrote many of them while raising two children. And controversial, but we might save that until a little bit later. Gretel Colleen, you grew up in the leafy North Shore suburb of Sydney, Taramara. Yes, I did. What was that like? Well, I don't think I fitted in very well. I was yearning for a different space that I didn't know existed, I think. I had an ache in my heart for much of my childhood, and I don't know why, but I did. And so as soon as I uh, could leave home, I did at 17 and moved into Taylor Square in Darlinghurst in Sydney, which was a pretty rough and tumble place in those days. And um, the search began to get rid of the ache in my heart. Can you remember what it felt like having an ache in your heart as a yes. child? Because pretty everything about your childhood that I've read sounds pretty idyllic. Yes, I know. It's one of those weird things that's just inside you, isn't it? It was an ache like I'd lost something and I had to go and find it. Don't I sound like a genius poet? <laughs> but that's true. That's what it felt like. Do you remember the earliest times feeling like that? It was always there. I mean, my earliest memory is sitting in the back of the car when, you know, when you suddenly realise that your feet don't touch the ground. Silly things like that, I recall. But no, the ache was always there. And so as bizarre as it sounds, and I have a a lovely family and lovely parents and, yes, wanting not for shelter or food or anything else, I don't know where the ache came from. It's like I was missing a part right from the beginning and then had to go and find it. And how did that manifest as a child if you if you couldn't sort of deal with that ache by moving off to Darlinghurst in your, you know, pre-teens or early teens? What did that make you like? It made me always want to find fellow travellers, always wanting to find um, people that would see the world the same way I did, which I think maybe a crucial reason why people like myself do write or do create because we're yearning for someone with whom we can communicate that inner whatever it may be and perhaps only you at that time can understand it. So you talk to yourself. And how did you do that? Writing mainly. I wrote my first novel when maybe I was five or six Looking back, it was somewhat plagiarised because there appears to be Mickey Mouse on the cover, a rather badly drawn one, but nonetheless. Yeah, looking for fellow travellers has always been an important part of my life. Did you have friends? Thank you very much, Hamish, yes. I did have friends. I still do. Thank you very much. You may be one if you want to. Thanks. That's very generous of you. They seem quite happy with my friendship. No, I was look. I looked like a normal person, Hamish, and I functioned like a normal person. It was just different people have different motivations. Some people want world dominance. Some people want want to acquire wealth beyond comprehension. Some people want to help others. We don't know where these motivations come from. My initial and rather long lasting search was to find the missing piece. 
females were treated very differently in those days. Um, so I was growing up, people always say the decade they were growing up in and I think, really, you were? I don't know if that's the decade you're born in or the decade that you I don't know. Anyway, so let's just say I was raised in the 2000s. No, I would say in like in the 70s or so, the 60s women were getting more more vocal. Our mothers who formerly would have been happy perhaps to be at home were now compelled to have a job whether they wanted to or not and now questioning their relationships. This is around. This is not my my own family. But I went to an all-girls school. It was a very academic school and I was academic myself. So high achieving in that arena but nobody really knew what to do with females at that time. Um, I think we were and still can be perceived as witches if you're outspoken or strong. Now, there is that lovely awareness that that people don't know where strength comes from in somebody and they can be very scared of what you're going to do with it. So I think a lot of people try to suppress that in others and I was probably part of a world that was still doing that and when I was growing up. Do you remember what the expectations were that others had of you or what your expectations were that were pushed back? Even though women were perceived to now be able to do anything, in my world, if you were a certain intelligence, whereas previously it might have been a teacher or a nurse, now you are expected to be a doctor or a lawyer. You certainly were not expected to think or act outside uh, a template. People are still scared of rogues and individuals, I think. Although it's interesting nowadays because it's been redefined to become part of the mainstream, which therefore, of course, by definition, means it's not roguish or individualistic for for people to think they're artistic or creative or, or entrepreneurs or whatever that avenue is, because it is now mainstream. So there must be people outside that who are still forging their own path away from from the predictability. There's there's so much pressure on who you're meant to be and how you're meant to behave. And it takes a great deal of strength to say, I've got to find my own way. You were raised in a Methodist household. Was Mm. that a big part of life growing up, Faith? Well, we went to Sunday school, uh, but I think that was really just cheap babysitting. And my grandparents were very influential in that because of the, I think, the emotional repression. But now, of course, I look back at it and I think we were all very much a product of the fact that grandparents had been through wars and lost loved ones and the women had had to be independent, raising their families and working, although we lost that, weirdly, decades later. But um, I think that there was a tremendous amount of pain that with our grandparents and they raised the next generation with emotional austerity and a great sense of duty. And my generation was the byproduct of that. And now, of course, what my generation does, who, God willing, we haven't had a great deal of that hardship. So we were raised with austerity and hard work. We've applied that to our lives, which have been relatively abundant. So now we're spoiling our children rotten and rendering them incapable of being strong and independent and courageous because they don't have the skills. So that's interesting because I think actually as time is passing, those skills are going to be required in the next few decades. Did you carry faith into into your adult life? I think work ethic has been a huge component of my life. It's interesting because so many religions are about 
enduring the suffering of this existence and being rewarded in the next. I think a great deal of that is to try and make sense of the nonsensical. I've, I've really only ever spoken to people of any religion, uh, is Sikhs who tell me that that is all about being in the here and now and no belief in the afterlife. And I think, well, that must enrich this here very much, make me a little bit bitter, I would imagine, but I'm not, I'm not a practising Christian, I never was, but work ethic I think is an important thing. As I get older and older, it's far more about enjoying life and did you laugh enough when you were alive? Did you love enough when you were alive? Not did you work enough? I think it's living. Did you feel all the emotions that you could? Was it a passionate life? To me, that's a life worth living. Kind, make people laugh, enrich each other. I think that's terrific, not hoarding your super, quite frankly, but I possibly say that because mine is paltry. But you do work very hard. I do work very hard, but I also do try to, um, this sounds a bit rude, but, but I try to love hard in the sense of my friendships, my children, as you said, I raised them myself um, from when they were very, very young. I do believe in giving an enormous amount. It's not a great thing always because most of society doesn't value that, my values, you know, that those things which I think should be the primary things in life about loving and sharing and nurturing one another and they're really quite low on the scale if we listen to the bombardment of media and whatever else that we get from the moment we wake up. Bitterness, misery, take, greed, what on earth is the dollar doing, how will this affect your life, here's a bit more misery and now go to work. Oh, you just ate breakfast, now you'll get fat. You know, like it's like, oh, on we go. But I think part of that is just you... I mean, we can call it getting older, but I call it getting wiser. You just get wiser and you can see the horizon from here and it's fixed and you're getting closer to it and you want to really make sure that these remaining decades are, are fulfilling and the reason we, we're meant to be here. Gretel Colleen had her first foray into the world of comedy at a pretty early age, 22. One night, she performed at the Harold Park Hotel. Can you take us back to Um Yes, event? I can. Well, I'd been performing a bit there. So it was performing comedy was so different in those days. My stand-up started by accident because I was reading a serious poem and people started laughing at it. I think the pursuit of filling that, you know, that thing that I was looking for there was someone putting on comedy in, um, I think it was one of the leagues clubs, but it was during a feminist separatist times. So I got on there and then I ended up kind of being, I, I was swept up in this tide of performing, always reluctantly. I wanted the roof to fall in. I was actually very shy, but had this weird driving force. Anyway, one night I was invited to perform at the Harold Park and on the night that I was performing it was packed because word had got out that Robin Williams was going to perform that night. So he was staying with some friends in Palm Beach. So, I mean, we, of course, thought it was for us, but uh, lo and behold, it wasn't. In those days, of course, I don't know what was happening to health and safety because it was every, you, you couldn't see, you stank because everybody was smoking, jam-packed into this space and the stage was only like quarter of a metre high. It was really all a bit muddly, this dark room out the back, chock-a-block, and then Robin Williams turned up. Strangely, only I remember that I was also 
on the show that <laughs> night. I, I doubt Robin Williams referred to it any other time, but so I was his support act, but uh, that has not actually been emblazoned in history. What happened next? We did those shows and it was amazing. It was a really important part in of Sydney's culture. Now, of course, that's all changed in that area. Billions more people seem to live in Sydney, but it was fantastic to be part of that. It was like living on top of a party that you could pop in and out of. And so many of those people went on to do amazing things. And all of the comics had performed there, whether it was Ernie Dingo or Akmal or or Andrew Denton or Berner or Robin Williams and Jane Campion was down there and everybody used to do stuff there. Um, then I had my babies while I kept working. I was a voice artist from the age of 20, which is an amazing job because in those days actors didn't want to be voice artists because there was a bit of a stigma about it. It was seen as commonplace. So for commoners like myself, that was fantastic. But you only got a gig if someone with the same voice range, vocal range, who could do the same characters and ages and whatever as yourself left. And of course, nobody ever left because it was a great gig. So women got paid as much per hour as men doing that, but we only got one eighth of the work because it was perceived that women's voices were annoying to listen to. Right. Yeah, so this ended up as I uh, raised my kids by myself because the marriage didn't last. It was a great gig because my children came to the voiceovers. They did their first voiceovers themselves at like two and a half and I could control my time and there was an abundance of work, which was fantastic. And uh, they just came along with me so they knew what was going on. So the marriage lasted how long? About five years. Right. And then you were how old when you had these two kids on your own? Well, we maybe we split up when I was about 29 and then a few, I don't know how many years after that, um, my ex-husband, which is a phrase I never even use because it's so long ago, even though I did say I was raised in the 2000s, it's a bit longer than that, <laughs> from just when they were really little. And it's fascinating because now they're 28 and 25 and it's interesting as I talk to them because they're so like me and all my tricks don't work anymore. My my manipulations, my power, they don't work because it's like talking to little big versions of myself. So I have to get smarter. I'm working on it now. What are the tricks? Well, the first thing is just say no. Just say no. This is a big failing with a lot of parents now. They explain things. Just say no. I think one of the good tricks I accidentally did was show my children what hard work is because I wonder myself what it's like for children who just have mum and dad tired at home, getting up early, great flurry. They don't know what their parents actually do. Mine came to those. So my son was on the midday show with me when he was a couple of weeks old. That was probably illegal too, but, you know, with a wild pig because we were acting in a show. Ray Martin was my husband in this pantomime we used to do. (laughs) I know, it all makes complete sense, doesn't it? And uh, so my children have always been there. They've illustrated books. Uh, We did a documentary on AIDS orphans, uh, awareness of that in Zambia when they were when my daughter was 12 and my son was a little bit older than that, and they interviewed all of the children. So they've always been around. I wonder what people would think, what kids think. Where They would have no idea what their parents actually do. So mine know that if it's been a long day and then it really was and work isn't just nine to five. If you work in this industry, there are no hours and there are no weekends, but you try to make life blend in with all of it because it's a career that we love. 
So you don't want to stop doing it. You have to find the blend. Did you feel a sense that you were subjecting to that them to that, not necessarily with their knowing? I didn't know I was doing it. It was different too. I mean, they were already isolated in a little way because being a single parent means that you're not embraced by a lot of other children's parents. Really? Oh, yes. I don't know if that's still the case, but certainly then. Can you just give me an example? Oh, if there's a dinner party, you don't get invited. Single people listening now would relate to that. People who are married probably aren't aware of it. But as you don't get invited. Uh, I think single men often get hooked up with somebody and suggested or whatever, but I don't know. I think it might be that witchy-poo thing again. I don't really know. I hope it's different for people now. It's certainly it's a different world now because sometimes people talk about being a single parent but they have their child one week on and one week off. But I had them all myself and financially supported them as well. So... Maybe I was just a scary, horrible person. I don't know. But we had a good time anyway without their dinner parties. You wrote a few years ago about being a single working mother, saying that you were subjected to dismissal, exploitation, and then you said that's just my role as a mum. Hilarious joke. Um, um, yes. But was that serious? Yes. I mean, that, there's no equality as a parent, is there? I mean, really, while we theoretically have the purse strings while they're growing up and and the power in terms of what time they go to bed, they've got your heart. They can do whatever they want because at the end of the day you adore them and would lay down your own life for them. You, you've mentioned this word witch a couple of times. Yeah. Why that word? Where does because, that come from his, in your world? Because historically I think that we've seen women persecuted throughout history. So if I just think of the witching, you know, there's terrible things of seeing if someone would would drown in the in the village pond, if the woman drowned, then she wasn't a witch and burning people and and persecuting them in that way. I think our society still does that to some degree. I don't know if they do it to men, so I don't want to sound sexist in, in any way. I just know that they do do it to women. And I'm hoping that it's less and less because more women are getting a voice. But I do feel that and I think that awareness Well, Hillary Clinton was referred to as a wicked woman and I think that galvanised a lot of people to suddenly go, yeah, I'm a wicked woman and that's okay. Well, that wasn't a cool thing to say 25 years ago. But the fact that it is cool now, fantastic. So you you sort of think women can use the nasty woman allegation to their advantage? I think the identification that you're not fitting the norm can be terrific. But I do still think uh, socially... We are trying to fit into a construct that was initially built by men that women fitted into and now we're trying to fit into it but playing a different character. I think it would be nice if we could evolve a gentler, more unisex kind of environment. I think that would be great because we're trying to move in. We're not renovating. We're moving into something that doesn't quite fit. be good to knock the building down and start again. I know that will never happen particularly with bureaucracy the way it is. It would go on forever and the budget would blow up. But at the moment I think we're still trying to fit in. I must say uh, being I've, I've been a feminist all my life but mainly because I've been forced to be that. Like many women like me of my generation, we were just forced to do that. We had to earn an income and we had to get out there and fight the fight. But I am equally as keen to fight the fight for anyone whom I feel does not have a quality or, or doesn't have a voice. So that's not, it's not the only string to my bow. I think it's 
really important to give people this opportunity, particularly when you consider what I think life actually is. You know, to be lived richly, then it's not fair for me to deny other people that opportunity. You've told me stories about blokes just not listening to you. Do you think that women in today's world are not heard? Uh, It's a bit hard to make a sweeping generalisation. Certainly still come across the old things of the more physical criticism of what you're saying rather than like you may recall, we'll leave no names, no pack draw, but I think we might have been referring to a certain uh, TV commentator who responded to something I said, which was relatively reasonable and considered with uh, you and your whingy, whiny voice. That kind of comment, which is not about the substance of what you're saying, it's about whether you're fat or ugly or your voice is annoying. It's not about your intellect or your ability to consider something. That's not uncommon in my scenario. But I saw, um, you know, Charlie Waterstreet is a great mate of mine. We had dinner last night. Charlie's a complete rat bag, as you would know. But he was saying to me, because he was going to use me as an excuse for not going somewhere. He was going to say, oh, Gretel said I can't go. I have to go to dinner with her. <laughs> and I said, oh, okay, if you must. And he said, well, I don't want to do it, but I know people are scared of you. I thought, oh, that's not very good, but maybe that's not just me, but maybe that's people are scared of something they don't understand, whether that's an ethnicity or a religion or an age or a gender. A lot of it must be fear-driven for people to react with such such a desire to quash and squash. So anyway, that's the only bit of wisdom Charlie's ever said, so it's good that we've recorded it here. <laughs> but do you, do you feel unheard on occasion, though? You have these incredible platforms. You can write. You can appear on television shows where you are invited on to give your opinion. But do you still, at the end of the day, feel that no. some blokes just won't hear what you've got to say? Oh, there'll, there'll always be people who don't hear what I've got to say uh, or what you have to say or anybody else. Do I, I feel I have um, a greater opportunity than some and I want to make the most of it. But, you know, you don't reach a point where you're now grown up and fully formed. It's astounding how much you continue to learn after your 40s, after your 50s. It's You can't believe you actually got on in the world with what you knew before because all of a sudden it's like the garden blossoms and, oh, my goodness, look at all these things I've become aware of. You you can read people better. You you have a little bit more time. You learn to be smarter, not to be quite so emotional. That might be based on exhaustion. You can't really be as emotional about everything. So I don't run around thinking, no, I'm not being heard because I know I'm not the most special person in the world. I think it's important to add your voice because... I mean, unless you're stupid and or uninformed. But I think it's important to participate in the conversation of the world while we're in it. You would have seen Gretel Colleen on all sorts of television programs, but one program probably springs to mind. That's Big Brother. It was a hit. It changed television in so many ways. And Gretel Colleen was the host. I guess that brings the, us to the kind of controversy bit <laughs> of this conversation because the show itself, when it first began, shattered so much of what people thought was acceptable television, didn't it? Yeah, it was such a fascinating idea. And the weird thing was that in when it first started here, even the internet wasn't populated as it is. We have to remember Facebook didn't exist. So the success of it globally, people didn't know about here. So 
it was a phenomenon that was a little bit like something that arrived on the endeavor. Here's this reality show. Let's let's see how it goes. I think the it was a lovely concept. Let's see how people will cope when they're placed in an environment together. Do you remember the conversations you were having about it at the time? I know Peter Abbott was the executive producer of Big Brother, someone with a mind that is really engaged with the psychology of people and how they interact. And he always talks about the the cocktail of brains that he wanted to put together in those houses. Was it a real kind of sociological experiment as opposed to just kind of cheesy TV? Well, I think as with many things, it evolved a great deal and it continues to evolve under different names and in different formats. But watching how people live uh, is a fascinating thing. It it was intended to be very pure. You couldn't necessarily see the cameras in those days. There was no contact with the outside world during the time that people were there. And it was really to see how people would develop. Would it be Lord of the Flies? Would they create a, a utopia? What would go on? But then what happens with these things? Because the first people who went in were more adventurous. They, they didn't know necessarily what had happened overseas, so they just volunteered. I know. Did they see an ad in the paper? I don't know. On a power pole somewhere? I don't know where they came from. And then so they were all put in there. But then because that first series was such a phenomenon, it then started to attract different kinds of people year after year. And then now, as we know, so much of reality television is actually about people who perhaps want to be famous or perhaps want to sell something else. So the, our original ones were people who wanted that experience. I mean, there were people, there will always be naysayers for anything. People are going to disagree with the weather prediction. They, and there are some people who just want to. They just want to be contrary with no evidence and no motivation and no ability to answer questions regarding it. You know, they just want to say no and stop things. I think it got Australia talking and it was at a strange time because suddenly that tsunami of social media and the internet all came to the fore and suddenly everybody had a voice and everybody could comment on everything. And as we know, society's changed enormously now. Media's lost a lot of its power. It's, it's shared with other people. As we mentioned earlier, truth's been redefined. And goals and aspirations, it's, it's fascinating how we have this broader access to information and yet we talk about the silo phenomenons of, of how mono our, our lives and our influences can actually be. There were some big defining moments on Big Brother uh, that influenced Australian culture pretty broadly. Uh, one was the evictee Merlin, who who appeared on the stage with you. He wore a gag over his mouth. Tape, yeah. Tape, right, and held a sign saying, free the refugees. What do you do in a moment like that? How do you, you're hosting a national program to millions of people, it's live, and the person you're meant to be talking to clearly ain't going to talk. The way a show like that is constructed is you meet families, you see everybody, you wonder who's going to be evicted and there are chats and interviews and packages and the whole bit and then you meet the person who's being evicted that night and you've allowed maybe 35 minutes for an in-depth one-on-one interview with this person with sponsors, gifts and whatever else. So when someone appears with tape on their mouth, that is a somewhat controversial in terms of what on earth live are you going to do? I have a lot of respect for Merlin doing that. I wish we'd had the opportunity to talk about the issue at the time, but we didn't. Merlin was very anxious. I had 
what is called an OB truck. Outside broadcast truck. Yep, with all the people in there in my ears because I've got a new piece on. Everybody's telling me what to do and I can remember saying, everyone be quiet. I knew what to do. I just knew what to do, just keep going. Merlin was distressed. I would love to talk to him now about things and I know he's talked since and, and with fondness I think about that time was an important issue and I respected his bravery doing it. But, it, yeah, that was chaos for the world. And this is before everybody could tweet each other and tell each other that this was going on. And see, that was a unique thing for him to do, wasn't it? We, and his dad was supporting him, I think, and he had to sneak the tape in. He had to plan the whole thing and the note He had because he was under scrutiny when he was in there. So how did he do it? He, I understand he folded it up and put it in a seam and of, of one of his shirts and then before he left he undid it and put it on, which is why part of the note had fallen off. But isn't that fabulous? I mean, that's what the world needs. It's almost hard to imagine it happening today. Yeah, because people would be fearful of sponsorship. How would that affect outcomes? It's funny, isn't it? What It feels like the world was so innocent then, but it was only 15 years ago. Oh, I don't actually know that. The, the show began about 15 or 16 years ago and it's so far away in my life because so many things have happened and yet it gave me a tremendous taste of what it's like to be really famous, to have absolutely no privacy, but that was before all the social media tweets and whatever else that come out now where people can be so horrible in judging women and men, but, you know, they can be very aggressive towards women. So that was prior to that. You'd get handwritten notes and you would reply in writing. Did you enjoy that fame? I'm hopeless, hopeless, hopeless celebrity. And also raising because I don't like... I don't like shallow talk. I don't like getting my hair done. I don't like getting my nails done. I don't like all of that stuff. But it did offer some extraordinary experiences, not just to see what another world actually is, the positivities of that. I think that if I probably wouldn't have done the doco in Africa without that. I was a goodwill ambassador for UNICEF for seven years, so I did shot uh, bits and pieces in Laos and Bangladesh and... and, uh, did a docker with my daughter in India and entertained the troops, did live crosses from Afghanistan and wherever else, all of which probably wouldn't happen have happened without that profile. It allowed me to understand a different part of life, which I think is really important for people like us who are commenting on society and politics to actually have understood things to a greater degree than an average person. Um, but it also, it's quite a hurtful place to be. And I think that's why a lot of people in the public eye still have their original friends from when they were school or uni or whatever because they're the people who knew and loved them and they can trust them because after that it's like, oh, my, you just don't know. You can't tell what species is out there and television has some interesting species. You make a point about this all being pre-Twitter and Facebook, yeah. the kind of the tsunami of of social media that can can come back at you when you, you reach those heights. The Logies hosting in 2009. Horrible. But I think that was just when Twitter was starting. Right. So luckily I think there were only like six people who had it. That pretty much, I mean, I've spoken about it before so I don't need to go on about it, but that broke me right. and I think good because I was, I'd ended up in a place that I didn't really want to be and when that person was smashed, 
it allowed me to re-emerge. It wasn't like, oh, at last, the real fabulous me can blossom. Here's my costume. It wasn't like that at all. It was, oh, bloody hell. Ow, ow, ow. So I identify with pain and loss, and I think that's important because from the outside, I look like I am a confident, privileged person, and I could have led that life, but I didn't. I've experienced things in my life that allow me to be empathetic towards others, and I think that's very, very important, in particular with what I plan to do in the future or whatever emerges. So from that painful time, I do know about constructing yourself, not necessarily reconstructing, but completely newly constructing. I know about pain and hope and what you hold on to and the people who are there around you and the people who are not. But I certainly don't think I'm unique in that position. So I'm grateful for it because I don't think that particular path I was on was a path to happiness anyway. It sounds quite similar to the way you described yourself at school, that you looked the part For all intents and purposes, people could observe you and see this person that filled the role and you could have kept going in that direction, but there was something about it that was not you. Yeah, it wasn't right. But, you know, I I don't think I'm unique in any of this. I think there will be a lot of people listening who identify with it. I think this construct was created of who we're meant to be and what we're meant to be, I think, by and large. To be honest, Hamish, I think it's created by people who are full of fear and they create notions of of what other people should fit into. And I think a lot of people are yearning to be something different but don't necessarily have the support system or the time or the energy or the health or whatever it is to push through a little bit further with that. So none of that do I regret. That I'm grateful for. There have been the interesting thing, I think, is what do you do with all these experiences? Holding them close to your heart, is that valuable? Do you share them? Like, So now I'm back up on stage doing stuff. So I started as a reluctant stand-up. I'm doing stand-up again but and just basically just blabbing on stage and I'm loving that because maybe we can just change one mind or give someone comfort and you're not alone and isn't life ridiculous and are you laughing enough? You know, like kind of walking the talk. Do you, uh, you're talking about writing back to people because they'd written into you. Uh, Did you get the love and hate mail? No, mainly love, I must say. I got uh, something in social media recently and a man wrote, um, can you be any more pathetic? And I just wrote back, yes. Of course, I can. <laughs> and someone else, I'd written a column for one of the newspapers and a man had written, this is the worst article anyone's ever written. I thought, oh, that's an achievement. Uh, in the whole history of the world, that's quite amazing. Worst article ever written and you really should do more research next time. And the column was about my own life. So, <laughs> so what it feels like to me now is that I live in a very big uh, village or a big country town and people know me. There's a great deal of fondness for a lot of the things that I've been in or been involved with, and that's lovely. And I think being able to to bask in that and just feel safe is is really lovely. What do you think of anonymity in the way you interact with people? Because on Twitter, on Facebook, people can write and say stuff that they probably would never say to you were they to meet you walking down the street. What do I think of the anonymity? One of the best coping methods I find is to actually go to that person's profile on Twitter or wherever it is and you can see that 
Invariably, they have a few followers, maybe only four or five, but they are sending out a hate tweet every two minutes to someone different. Perhaps an identical one to the one they've sent you, they've sent to four people prior. So I think putting that in perspective. I must say too, what a world we live in that encourages that kind of thing. But we we do live in a world that is about bullying and judgment and superiority. We wax lyrical about rights in one area and then do bullying on the news coverage and bullying, don't bully at school, but meanwhile put your friends in a list of, of order on Facebook. I mean, it's just none of it makes sense. So it doesn't surprise me that people feel alienated and if given an opportunity to have a voice, it doesn't surprise me they use it. I use mine. I just have a bigger platform. We've heard all these incredible things that you've done through your life, but when we started this conversation, you said that there was always a piece missing that you were you were searching for. Did, have you found that? I think, well, I think you can tell, Hamish, I'm pretty near perfect now. <laughs> and uh, what <laughs> I think that um, a lot of it is getting to know yourself, really sitting inside yourself. So now when I go to perform with something, it's, you know how some people get really anxious and, and nervous about, will I be able to perform on stage? I do the opposite. So I sit within myself knowing that I can do it, that I think I thought the world was a different place to what it really is. I thought everybody was smarter and everybody was kinder and everybody had the same motivation. So basically I was a really dumb, fairly smart person, but dumb, (laughs) just dumb. And so now I think I'm kind of cottoning on and I'm realising it's a waterhole and all these different species are coming to drink at it and some... Uh, while pigs and some are sloths and some are lions and some just look fabulous like a zebra, you know, like, but we're not all the same creature. We're humans, but we're not all the same. And and it's, hasn't it taken me a long time to realise that? But this is my little thing now of of trying to work out what animal someone is because once I know the animal that they are, then I don't expect them to behave differently and I'm not relentlessly surprised and gobsmacked by their behaviour, which I would have been previously. And I also have another new theory because I do love theories, (laughs) which I make up and then try and share with people and I don't think they're embraced, but we'll force people to embrace this now. So my other one is the canoe theory. Right. And that is really that there's only eight people can fit in your canoe. So everybody really has to serve a function in that canoe. If you're going to move forward, and I don't mean aggressively or in world domination, but if this canoe is going to serve its purpose of getting you from A to B, everyone in it has to paddle, basically. I think as a woman and as a nurturer and a misguided human who thought everyone was much nicer than they are, I I carried a lot of people, as I'm sure many of us have, thinking that they would change or that there would be reward. But now that I've got my canoe theory and my waterhole theory, Hamish, as you can imagine, there are no questions left unanswered. If you combine the two, basically I guess you get the arc now that I think about it. Is there quiet time for you? What does it look like? I walk everywhere to think. Thinking is the most underrated pastime. And so many people who are our peers do everything in a hurry. They're at the gym and they're running here and running there and I just... I think we don't think enough. We don't think through. We don't look at something from every angle. I think we're not taught how to think and that's very important. And I'm also, I take time out, which I call growing as a human being, which is, you know, that's a revolting little phrase I've got there, but it's about 
not doing anything, just letting yourself grow just for a minute. Let the sun be on you and let the rain be there and just grow because we don't allow ourselves just that space to all the nourishment and all the influences we've had. Let's just grow from that a little bit. Then we can get more influences. So it's trying to find a balance, which is not agonised. It's enjoyable. And the big trick, of course, for everyone in our society is to get rid of the worry and anxiety during the night, which so many people wake up with. And once again, that's using your brain and thinking to solve that problem of how not to be worrying and anxious. It's uh, basically, I'm just a one-stop shop, Hamish. <laughs> it's been a pleasure, Gretel Colleen. Thanks, Hamish. It's a Long Story is recorded at the Sydney Opera House as part of the Talks and Ideas program headed by Anne Mossel. Our show is hosted by me, Hamish McDonald, and is produced and edited by Cara jensen McKee. Our theme music is by Rishikesh Hewitt. We're recorded by Ben Wood, Shane Johnson and Ian Cooper, mixed by Brendan Zacharias. And our executive producer is Danny Lyle.